0: Hello and welcome to the Ravi Kumar podcast. I'm your host Ravi Kumar, and every week I chat with interesting, creative, talented and diverse people, passionate about what they do, be it their occupation, vocation, profession or service, and ask them questions to seek answers, glean insights, find out what inspires them, and share these learnings to inspire and motivate meaningful conversations with real people showcasing their unique perspectives that's what my show is all about thank you for listening to this podcast on my show today i have dr kiran keshav murthy dr kiran keshav murthy is assistant professor of english at the department of humanities and social sciences iit Guwahati. He completed his PhD in South and Southeast Asian Studies from the University of California, Berkeley. His research interests include gender and sexuality studies, caste studies, and modern Indian literatures. His first book, which was published in 2016 by Oxford Press, India, is Beyond Desire Sexuality in Modern Tamil Literature. Welcome Dr. Kiran Keshav Murthy to the Ravi Kumar Podcast.
1: Thank you, thank you very much uh, for having me on this show Ravi. It's my
0: pleasure Dr. Kiran. Can I start by asking you to please tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh,
1: yes, so I, uh, I am uh, Kiran Keshav Murthy and I currently teach uh, English uh, at uh, the Department of uh, Humanities and Social Sciences uh, at IIT Guwahati. Um, i completed uh, my phd from uh, the university of california berkeley uh, in uh, modern thomas literature from the department of south and southeast asian studies and uh, this is currently my third job Uh, my first job was at Manipal university in jaipur then i spent uh, a few years at the center for studies in social sciences at calcutta and now i'm presently at IIT Guwahati.
0: but you're a number bangalore Huruga actually having done your commerce (laughs) graduation uh, from Bangalore University and then you've done a double ma to uh, first in Jadavpur University and then in the University of California, Berkeley, from where you obtained your PhD as well in South and Southeast Asian studies. So, uh, Dr. Kiran, I'm very interested in asking you this question. How did the switch take place from commerce to the humanities?
1: Yes, so uh, that was actually a completely uh, unplanned and coincident uh, coincidence. I um, was actually planning to do a, a BA, uh, but for various reasons I did not end up doing a BA after my 12th standard. I was thinking of uh, doing a BA either in uh, English or in philosophy, but it did not happen, so I ended up doing a BCom, but then uh, doing a Bachelor uh, of in Commerce ended up being a, a blessing in disguise because I spent those three years with my grandmother and great aunt and um, that's where I actually learned Tamil, uh, how to speak and how to read. Uh, since my grandmother could not speak uh, any other language since Tamil and some Kannada. So that's where I actually learned the language. Uh, I began to read it with the help of my aunt. Uh, Initially, through magazines, uh, we would watch uh, TV, Tamil TV shows together. And then, uh, uh, you know, it was a combination of my own effort in learning the language as well as uh, my brother Prashant's uh, uh, kind of inspiration. I think somewhere he also was the first person in my family to uh, among me my family, my cousins to uh, pursue a Bachelor of Arts and then he went on to doing an M.A. and an MPhil in English and so I think he was uh, you know a, a great influence in my life to actually uh, encouraged me to pursue the humanities uh, seriously, and so uh, my Bcom was actually spent uh, in uh, learning and uh, learning to speak and read Tamil, and that uh, that was, I think, my formative period. After which, I ended up doing a masters in comparative literature from uh, Jadavpur in uh, Calcutta, and. Then going on to doing a PhD, so I think it was just uh, uh, like a, a constellation of different factors.
0: Right, a blessing in this, guys. I think sums it up perfectly. So your essays and your book focus primarily on Tamil literature. Can you take us through the journey in this domain?
1: Uh, yes. So I think uh, for anyone who is doing a PhD, they will realize that. Uh, you know what they set out doing initially does not always end up being uh, the final product. Uh, you you can kind have of, you begin with certain objectives, certain interests, broad interests in mind, and then you end up. Uh, you know the moment you uh, start reading deeply. Uh, extensively in a particular field then you realize that uh, this is exactly what you actually want to end up doing uh, my advisor my PhD advisor, his name is George Hart and he is now a retired uh, professor uh, he uh, you, he, he's, uh, he is himself a white American but he was uh, the student of the famous uh, AK Ramanujan uh, who was himself uh, a bilingual if not a trilingual scholar of uh, Kannada and uh, Tamil and and uh, he was the person who first set up uh, Tamil studies in the in America, North America. Uh, he was at the University of Chicago, and uh, his student was uh, uh, George Hart, who was my advisor. And George Hart himself was uh, initially uh, a scholar of Sanskrit, after which he began to uh, study and. Uh, learn Tamil and he was then, uh, he then ended up becoming an expert in uh, Tamil uh, Sangam poetry which is the earliest corpus of uh, Tamil poetry that exists yeah. and um, I initially thought of actually working on uh, earlier an earlier period of Tamil uh, a period which has not normally been worked on mm-hmm. which was on the uh, 17th and 18th century uh, when uh, you know, uh, printing was uh, uh, becoming a commercial uh, uh, venture, and uh, I was actually interested in the advent of print, print culture, and how printing—the setting up of printing presses on either either coast of southern India—okay, uh, enabled enabled the possibility of. Uh, you know, uh, disseminating and circulating uh, Tamil texts, especially older Tamil texts. And I was also interested in looking at how the rediscovery of certain older Tamil classics uh, from the Sangam period onwards were, uh, were, uh, you know, being printed and circulated amongst the literate elite and was becoming the occasion for the celebration of a much longer history, uh, literary history to the language and the literature. And then there, of course, later on in the early 20th century, that became also uh, the factor that fueled uh, the Dravidian movement uh, and much pride in Tamil. So, but so actually, I was interested in working on that period. But then later on, I I I, I my interest grew more towards uh, contemporary literature and i discovered that i actually wanted to work on modern tamil uh, literature partly because of my love for fiction but partly also for the fact that uh, there was nobody else in the english speaking world who was actually working on modern uh, literature because uh, you know all the scholars i knew were working on classical or early medieval uh, periods in uh, tamil literature and so there was this uh, kind of heavy weight that uh, existed in the Tamil uh, uh, academic world intellectual world where there was a greater emphasis and a greater prestige attached to uh, older Tamil literature so which is why I thought that I should actually work on something which has not been worked on okay right. and so I think that that's where my interest
0: right so what is your view on how Tamil is taught in schools and colleges in India And my follow-up question is how different is Tamil or Tamil being taught in American universities given that you've studied it
1: there as well? Uh, Yes, so uh, I have a greater familiarity with um, the way Tamil is taught in uh, North American universities. So my own advisor uh, George Hart uh, taught us and read with us Sangam Tamil literature and he also introduced us to uh, the uh, the Tamil Ramayana composed by Kamban in uh, the 12th century and His wife, Kausalya Hart uh, was, uh, you know, a language specialist, but she also, you know, read literature with us. And so uh, if you had to actually read literature with Kausalya, uh, especially Kausalya, then you had to have uh, a prior familiarity with the language. So she also taught Tamil language to, uh, uh, you know, beginners as well as intermediate students. And uh, she introduced many students to the Tamil language, Uh, but, you know, unlike... Sanskrit, uh, Tamil is not a very um, uh, systematic language. It's it's not always. It's it's very context dependent. So it does become a little hard to access the language and to learn it and to study it, especially if you come from a Sanskrit background or even any other language, a more uh, let's say a, a more recent or a more a younger language which has a more uh, systematic, and logical grammar to it. Uh, it it can be quite challenging to learn Tamil. Um So, I think um, it was challenging uh, for students who did not have a prior familiarity with the language of the literature or with or with its culture uh, so I think in most. Uh, universities in the, in America, uh, Tamil language is taught, but not necessarily literature. Uh, there are a few other places like Austin, where you have people uh, UT Austin, where people teach both language and literature, or even Chicago, where you have people or a person who teaches both language and literature. But generally, uh, Tamil uh, language is is taught in isolation, and uh, there they try to uh, systematize it. Especially even in Europe, there have there's been a history of uh, uh, you know a philological study of the language and there has been a very uh, systematic att- an, an attempt to systematize the study of tamil grammar and language but in uh, india or in south india the way i understand it and the way i've actually uh, experienced it through uh, my cousins and my friends who have studied tamil in Tamil Nadu, is that uh, a lot of the, uh, the method of teaching is uh, through rote through memorization Okay. So, you know, you, you start memorizing the language from a very uh, young age uh, in terms of its poetry and its, you know, so you there's there's an there's an emphasis on memorization and I'm sure that there's a lot of merit to memorizing uh, poetry because you, you you never actually forget it uh, and uh, memorization is always being downplayed and de-emphasized in, in uh, the American context, uh, but not so in the South Indian context. But I think, uh, so memorization itself is not the problem. The problem arises when you memorize Without being able to understand why, uh, let's say a particular phrase is the way it is, or why is the, the syntax of the language the way it is, so I think these both these methods need to go together. You have a systematic, you have a, an attempt to try and understand and logically explain the grammar of a language, but also you have an attempt to try and uh, memorize and to understand the or appreciate the aesthetic of the language.
0: The observation of mine from what you've just said is that this uh, emphasis on rote learning and an endemic problem through Indian education as such. And uh, I'm tempted to ask you, uh, have you by any chance come across the new education policy 2020, which attempts for the first time to break away from this uh, problem on hand and move to a more contemporary style of learning. But uh, I I think, we can have another conversation on that sometime later. For now, I would like to talk about your book, uh, Beyond Desire Sexuality in Modern Tamil Literature. And where did you get the idea for this book, given that a sexuality is such a squeamish issue to talk about in public or private spheres, particularly in India? and How will this book contribute to the debate on gender and sexuality in modern Tamil literature?
1: Uh, Right, so uh, this book is already uh, four years old now and uh, you know I I I think now I think I should actually probably rename the book uh, Beyond Desire, Masculinity in uh, Modern Tamil Literature. I feel like the book is really more about masculinity uh, and male desire. But I think the emphasis is really on masculinity and what it means to be uh, a man. And the second question, of course, is what it means to be a desiring man. So, these two questions are interrelated in the book. Um, I, As I said earlier, I think I just came upon this question or this idea very organically. As I was reading um, a lot of uh, fiction, I think one of the major themes in uh, many stories and plots uh, seems to be desire itself, right? Uh, so, uh, one could not Uh, ignore the question of desire in all its manifestations, whether it's eroticism, or it's love, or it's spirituality, whatever it is. Uh, So I was trying to look at desire in all its avatars. And um, I was not uh, necessarily thinking about the moral or the ethical implications of writing such a book. I was actually more interested in looking at how desire becomes a narrative agent. How how does desire actually produce uh, stories? uh and, and characters and how does desire uh enable the transformation and the evolution of characters in uh, in different uh, novels and short stories so i um so i i think uh for me sexuality is uh you know a larger question it's not it's not you can't equate sexuality with the sexual act or uh, uh you know so it's, it's a larger question about um uh, sexual what it means to be a desiring subject who is subject to social constraints social limitations norms and you know in what ways do uh, characters fictional characters negotiate with those norms and how do they how how are they transformed in the process of negotiating with these different modes. And I realized that uh, in the process of these transformations, uh, many of these narratives that I was looking at, I realized that there was no resolution to the question of desire. Uh, these characters, uh, you know, began desiring, desiring. You know, in this case, uh, female characters, women appear, women, female characters. Uh, very often these desires could not be fulfilled, Uh, they were left dissatisfied and uh, these male characters often they ended up redirecting, reorienting the desires towards other aims, Uh, spirituality in some cases, in other instances, uh, various forms of creativity and labor, Uh, physical labor, artistic labor and uh, I also argue in the book that it's that none of these forms of um, self fulfillment end up becoming uh, successful there's there's always this constant oscillation back and forth between you know uh, and and that's exactly what enables the development the transformation of the of the human character or the human subject in these texts because they're able to uh, in some sense transform themselves transcend themselves through the work that they do, whether it is artistic labor, whether it's spirituality. So, I was actually interested in looking at these texts as texts that remain open-ended. There is no resolution to the question of desire.
0: Right. I did go through a couple of the stories, a couple of the uh, analysis of of the book that you've done, the chapters and the authors whom you've referred to. And at many points, I felt that uh, it it also spoke about unrequited love. Would you you agree with that?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So how much of time went into researching your book, uh, Dr. Kiran? Subsequently, how many hours did you devote reading the actual book? And did it give you relief and joy to see it finally in print being your very first book? Uh,
1: Yes, so I think it was quite a long drawn-out process uh, like anybody who does a dissertation, they will know it that uh, you know it takes a while to figure out what you want to write about, uh, and then the second stage is trying to actually produce a coherent and clear narrative out of what you have decided to write about. So that takes time again because um, you know thinking about something in a very abstract way or just in terms of your interests in terms of your gut feeling is one thing and actually giving it a concrete form is another thing altogether because uh, you know the process of writing is itself a process of thinking and rethinking what you have initially set out to do so it doesn't always end up in the form that you thought it would and so there is always this um, Kind of a slippage, a uh, disjuncture between what you thought of initially and what you actually end up writing. Because the process of writing a book itself is a narrative, it's itself a story of uh, omissions and inclusions and uh, so uh, the book itself is a is like a narrative so it it, this is not a it's not something which can be anticipated so as you're writing there's a lot of joy There's a lot of hard work too in the process of producing a book and i think by the end of it i was so tired of it that i think i i i I couldn't care less about uh, you know the final book i mean i was just happy i was done with the dissertation and then there was more work involved in trying to convert the dissertation into a book because then you really have to you know in many ways again think of rethink the interconnections between the chapters you have to look at whether your book can be pitched to uh, a larger audience uh, who may uh, you know it may have to be simplified at points to make it more accessible to uh, a larger audience again depending on the kind of people you would like the, to read the book okay. and, uh, and the publisher itself and you also have to kind of reformat it so there are lots, lots of other stylistic and uh, conceptual uh, changes that have to be made in the book but um, besides that I just uh, think that you know I think the journey itself matters more than the final product so I did enjoy it but there's a lot of hard work involved but uh, I think the journey was actually for me more important than the final product i can
0: i can sense that uh, uh, in the way you mentioned that um, can we expect more books from you in the future uh, dr kira what other genres would you consider if you had the time
1: and the resources yes so i am thinking of other uh things to write about. I think one uh, is a couple of essays which are that I'm actually currently working on, again comparative essays on uh, modern Tamil literature. I am also working on a book of uh, translations from Tamil to English, okay. uh, a book of translations of uh, uh, five uh, anti-caste and uh, socialist writers Okay. Uh, writing across the early decades of the 20th century. And uh, I am also thinking of another monograph, another book on the uh, great and famous uh, Tamil arch-modernist, Subrumane Bharati. And, uh, And I might also probably venture into maybe learning other South Indian languages and literatures to be able to do some other comparative work.
0: Right. So the road ahead seems to be a lot of writing um, research work and publishing for you
1: yes absolutely
0: right so pre-pandemic uh doctor was supposed to be on the vein or so we read but during the pandemic we have come across several reports in the media that said people had resumed their reading habits in full force for want of uh, nothing but, uh, better to do and uh, so much so that certain bookstores Reported starting home delivery of books to cater to the huge demand. Uh, I want to ask you this very broad question: What's your view on reading as a habit and an activity?
1: Yes. Uh, so, to answer your broad question first, um, I it's it's a little hard to generalize. I I do feel like uh, generally reading. Especially reading serious fiction, or maybe even non-fiction, or reading in or in you know various genres of books, generally has come down. Uh, if you notice the younger generations, the more contemporary generations, uh, people read, but how, what they read, and how deeply they read something is uh, is a question that is hard to answer. I'm not sure. Uh, if younger people nowadays actually end up reading uh, a lot of good or a serious fiction, whether they're actually thinking in terms of uh, what they read and how deeply they read something. Uh, people claim to have read a lot. Uh, people claim to have read widely. Um, people uh, say they like people like uh, chaitanya Bhagat and so on. So, uh, you know, um, if if you have been exposed to a lot of Great literature, all the great artists, people who are, you know, who have, who have, you know, who are still considered classics, uh, people uh, writers whom one must read in terms of broadening the imagination. Broadening one's idea of one's appreciation of literature, Uh, I think that there are very few people who actually uh, read or are familiar, even or even know of these great artists and writers. So, uh, you know, I think reading has become a very um, niche uh, kind of pastime. I mean, I'm not sure, maybe things have changed during the lockdown. Okay. Uh, And as you say, as i see maybe the, the delivery of books perhaps may have encouraged and enhanced reading habits but um, you know how you know i for me the question always lies uh, you know not how much you've read but how well you have read what you've read uh, and of course what you have read too uh, that it i think becomes the question. right um you know uh, i think you
0: preempted uh, uh, the next question of mine uh, in a little way in your answer but let me uh, ask uh, the same, uh, irrespective of that. Uh, Doctor, we are deluged with information at the tips of our fingers. And while we rant and rave about its topicality, it's, uh, it, to me, it seems like a case of here today, gone tomorrow. But literature is forever.
1: Can you talk about the importance of literature? Uh, Yes, so I think uh, as you said in your question, this really has become an era of greater and greater distractions. So it becomes really hard for uh, a lot of people today of all age groups to be able to focus on something. Uh, Because, you know, we have so many interruptions, so many distractions. Uh, The attention span of the average reader has shrunk because we have access to WhatsApp and we have access to so many different kinds of uh, social media. And uh, there's this illusion that, uh, you know, we have um, uh, developed greater ties with each other and with things. But I think that's an illusion because, uh, you know, we have become so distracted. We think that we have become uh, very accessible to each other, but there's a strange paradox where access to different kinds of technology, different forms of technology, have only made us more and more uh, distracted and, uh, uh, you know, separate. So we do have to make the best, exploit uh, uh, the different forms of technology that that we have, because I wouldn't be anti-technology. But at the same time, one also needs to uh, be able to focus on some of our more old fashioned habits of actually sitting down and reading something with great care and attention. And literature is part of it. Um, You know, if you look at the newer forms of literature nowadays, like flash fiction, that becomes an example of, uh, you know, something of how distracted we have become. Because we have become more and more used to shorter and shorter forms of uh, fiction. We want quicker and uh, faster reading habits. Uh, We don't have as much time to spare. And uh, yet, there are people who are writing long editorials in some of the more prestigious uh, online journals and magazines that we have today. Uh, we have, uh, you know, it's it's a strange paradox where people seem to have, uh, uh, are being bombarded with uh, so much of stimuli uh, we have so many different sites, so many different places to read things. Uh, we can't even, uh, you know, uh, verify the veracity of something, that's something that we have read. We don't even know if it's true. Uh, we have so many, uh, you know, conflicting opinions, uh, so that it's hard for us to kind of take a stand to decide what is right and what's not, uh, what is reliable and what's not. Um, so, in a in an age in a world like this where we have such an influx of information. Uh, it became, it's become a challenge to actually distinguish information from uh, opinions, right? and I, But I think that distinction should—we uh, should hold on to that distinction. Uh, we need to be able to uh, form opinions on the basis of what we read and how well, let's say, a piece uh, has been argued, an issue has been argued, instead of just um, you know consuming information and data. So, uh, we can't completely do away with that any distinction, irrespective of the fact that we're being exposed to so many different kinds of media and virtual realities. But um, literature, I think, always holds a very important position because it really uh, is a way of trying to understand or imagine uh, an alternative world. Uh, you know, through the imagination of a character, uh, how do we actually try and understand different forms of realities? Um, And um, how do we interpret these realities? On what basis do we interpret them? And uh, what does that hold for us in terms of a a better future, an ethical future, a future where you have, um, uh, you know, a greater greater sense of responsibility uh, towards each other and towards ourselves, so yes, so I think I think it's a strange uh, paradox that we have sort of access to well-written long pieces, and yet uh, we have our minds seem to have shrunk. We don't see, we can't seem to have, we can't seem to invest our minds and our attention to uh, anything for let's say more than fifteen to twenty minutes at the most.
0: Uh, you know, attention deficit disorder was earlier attributed to youngsters but i think attention deficit disorders now is now age the neutral everybody seems to be with yes. this phenomenon. uh the other important um, point which you made uh dr kiran is called flash fiction it seems to me yes. has taken over or given birth to that flash fiction consisting of 140 plus characters yes <laughs> right uh, we could talk about this uh, more and more. Uh, such a lovely conversation. Thank you. Uh, one last question before I let you go, Dr. Kira. Uh, tell us something yes. about the city in which you live in currently, guwahati uh,
1: What makes you like it? Help us to live it vicariously through your eyes. guwahati is a very, uh, it's a very charming city. I mean, the first thing that struck me when I when I came here was uh, the small hilux and it's lush greenery. Uh, it's a very green city because like the rest of the Northeast, it receives uh, two monsoons, I mean, two uh, showers. Okay. Monsoon, there's, a pre-mon- there's a pre-monsoon shower in March, and then it goes all the way down to August, September. So it rains a lot, and you can see the, the difference it makes on the hills, the hillocks, because they, they turn completely lush green. And um, you have the the River, uh, on whose banks the city lies, okay. and uh, it's a very. It looks deceptively calm and serene, but it's actually quite, uh, quite a, choppy, violent river. Okay, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a very cute city. It's not very big, uh, which is why I like it. It's a city that sleeps, and um, I also live in one of the oldest neighborhoods of the city where the British first set foot um and you have a lot of charming old asmi's houses Uh, the few that are remaining are in the area where i live and my IIT, where i teach is across the river on the northern side of the city and it's a lovely campus Um, again it has a lot of hillocks trees Um, and it's it's a it's a good life it's it's a very relaxed and a good life Um, i couldn't have asked for better because i don't have to teach for you know, 18 to 20 hours like many college teachers do. I have, uh, uh, you know, I have uh, enough time to do my own research. And I also enjoy both the worlds of, you know, campus life as well as city life.
0: Fantastic. Um, You know, uh, you said uh, the city that sleeps and you also said that it's a green city. Uh, It makes me want to compare it with Bangalore, but I won't. leave the two cities to their uh, attractions and uh, we look forward to meeting you Dr. Kiran when you come back to Bangalore sometime and continue this yes. conversation face to face yes thank you for your time Absolutely. being on the Ravi Kumar podcast I hope uh, you get to complete uh, your research and uh, we look forward to more uh, books from you
1: in the future thank you very much
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ravi Kumar Podcast Talk Show. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Kiran Murthy, you can follow him on his Facebook page kiran.keshavmurthy.1. Do visit anchor.fm slash the Ravi Podcast to listen to our earlier interviews, 17 of them and counting. Till we meet again on my next episode, this is Ravi Kumar signing off. Remember to stay safe and positive, wear a mask for your own safety and others, and practice social and physical distancing. Remember, these times shall soon pass. Bye for now.